whatever we do, we do from a sincere love that is within us. And if the love within us is the love of Christ, is the love of God, then whatever we speak, whatever we send in text messages, whatever emails we send, we do it. We do it with the motivation of edifying others. And I'm going to argue as we get to uh, verse three here and, and and talk about and apply these three verses. I'm even going to argue that our motivation toward our enemies needs to be to edify them. time together, uh, we finished up Paul's uh, discourse on uh, unity by contentment. Uh, we, we learned that contentment breeds maturity in the faith, and maturity in the faith brings unity in the local church. And Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, encouraging uh, unity in the body. Uh, he is encouraging unity by way of maturity. It is Paul's idea, and I think he's right because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit as he writes 1 Corinthians, is Paul's idea that immaturity breeds division in the local church and maturity breeds unity. So, so he's hoping to make the local church at Corinth mature in this letter. And in this letter, he is responding to a letter that was sent to him, presumably by Chloe's people, those who were on Paul's side and they were tattling on the church at the same time. So he's responding to this letter that probably came from Chloe's people. And today we begin a new section in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul is answering another question that was presented in this letter. Uh, this question has to do with the eating of meat that was sacrificed to idols. So in the pagan temples, they would take um, meat and they would sacrifice it to the idols and then sell it in their marketplaces. And Paul's whole thing here is, look, you don't have to feel guilty about going to the marketplace and buying this type of meat. You don't even have to ask about it because there are really no other gods. So it couldn't have been sacrificed to another god. No other god exists, right? Um, but there are some people, really legalistic people, who are like, no, if you buy this meat, uh, you are... In sin, if you consume this meat, you are worshiping an idol and participating with those who worship idols, uh, things that aren't really gods, but they're saying they are they are gods. Paul's saying it's not the case, but you should honor the convictions of your brother. So uh, that is this section of Paul's letter to, to, to Corinth in a nutshell. And I just want to work through this. Uh, I have heard these texts applied in many ways from the consumption of certain foods like pork to the consumption of alcoholic beverages uh, to just to just plain honoring the convictions of your brothers and sisters when you are around them even if you don't have the same convictions i think those are healthy uh, but paul starts at a very basic place here uh, a basic place that isn't often talked about so i want to spend our time together in the first 3 verses first corinthians Chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, Paul begins addressing this, the, the meat sacrificed to idols. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant. 
but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So Paul, very first thing, before even applying divine truth to the practice of eating meat sacrificed to idols, the very first thing he addresses is arrogance within the local church. Um, arrogance as opposed to edification. And he's, he's really drawing a dichotomy between these two things, arrogance and edification. He's saying edification, good. <laughs> arrogance, not so good. In fact, arrogance is, is a thing which causes division in the church at Corinth. And Paul is admonishing them toward, toward edification, toward love that comes from a sincere heart, love that causes them to edify one another rather than arrogance, which causes them to belittle one another and divide the church and tear down people. So, so edification is the goal here. Uh, edification is basically building others up through teaching through admonishing. Paul has already made that very clear in his letter to the local church at Corinth, uh, through correction, uh, through rebuke if needed, even through church discipline, as we saw in chapter 5. Uh, all, all of these things work together for the edification of other people, not to tear others down. So from the outset here, we know if our goal is ever to tear someone down, to strip someone of honor or position, to, uh, to really belittle someone else. If that is our motivation, if that is what we are out to do, to, to get someone to pay the restitution they owe everyone else, or to, to really destroy someone's life or reputation, uh, to tear down someone else's ministry, if that is our goal, we are in opposition to Scripture. Uh, we are in opposition to love that edifies. Uh, whatever we do, I think Paul admonishes us. I think the Holy Spirit convicts us and turns our hearts in this direction. Whatever we do, we do from a sincere love that is within us. And if the love within us is the love of Christ, is the love of God, and whatever we speak, whatever we send in text messages, whatever emails we send, we do it we do it with the motivation of edifying others. And I'm going to argue as we get to uh, verse 3 here and, and, and talk about and, and apply these three verses, I'm even going to argue that our motivation toward our enemies needs to be to edify them. Without further ado, let's just march through this text. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Again, these were uh, things sacrificed to idols and then sold in the marketplace. And, and there was a real legalistic group saying, even if you buy that stuff, um, unaware that it has been sacrificed to an idol and consume it, you are in sin, rebellion against God. You have broken the command of God. And you are going to hell, right? You are not a Christian if you eat meat sacrificed to idols, even if you do it unwittingly. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, 
We, no, Paul, including himself, this we, this is an inclusive term, we, Paul, Chloe's people, the uh, Cephasites, the Apollosites, we, we know that we all have knowledge. Does every person in the church have knowledge? The answer to that question is yes. And Paul here, even recognizing that those who oppose him, those who have a problem with him, those in the church at Corinth who are persecuting him and throwing stones, lobbing rocks from afar, uh, he even recognizes they have knowledge. Here he uses this inclusive term, we, and he says, we know that we all have knowledge. Not everybody has the same knowledge, but everybody has knowledge. In fact, we all specialize in different areas of the knowledge that we have. I think there are a few different types of knowledge that I recognize in, in the world and in the local church. Um, factual knowledge, information, theological knowledge, experiential knowledge, uh, knowledge that people gain from the experiences of their lives, a religious knowledge, knowledge about religious things to do and the expectations of religion, a practical knowledge, just a basic knowledge about how to do stuff. These are the types of knowledge that I recognize in the world today and in the local church. And I think all of these forms of knowledge are in view here. But each person in the local church and each group in the local church, we all have knowledge of some kind that benefit the community of faith. And not everybody's knowledge looks the same, but everybody has knowledge nonetheless. We know that we all have knowledge. Another way we can look at this is if you ask somebody, are you knowledgeable? Almost everybody is going to answer by saying, yes, I know stuff, right? Yes, I know stuff. And everybody who knows stuff, or some people who know things and stuff, um, we, we often compete as to who knows more or whose knowledge is correct and incorrect. But Paul doesn't care about any of that. Instead, Paul just says, Knowledge makes arrogant. It's right here in verse 1. Knowledge makes arrogant. Why does knowledge make arrogant? Well, because the more I know, factually, theologically, the better I can articulate theological doctrine, maybe the more I feel superior to others. Now, this is a difficult subject to address. Um, I am certainly familiar with arrogance. Uh, I know what it means to, to succumb to arrogance to one degree or another in life and in ministry and, and knowledge here, particularly theological knowledge, factual knowledge, um, intellectual like, like knowledge. I know what it means to succumb to arrogance because I've done it. Um, no one is exempt from this. Uh, everyone who has ever been apart from Christ has, has been arrogant. Like arrogance is one of the marks of, 
of not being in Christ or of, or of straying in our relationships uh, with Christ in one way or another. Like arrogance is, is something everybody knows, even if we don't admit it, right? So there's that theological arrogance. Knowledge makes arrogant. Um, there's also the, the arrogance of experience, right? Or, or experiential knowledge, which leads to arrogance. Like uh, people get um, old enough, have enough life experience, work experience, relationship experience, or, or whatever, and they become arrogant because their experience outweighs someone else's experience. Uh, but this doesn't even make sense, right? Because the, the world is always changing. The world is in flux. It's not, it's not static. It's dynamic. So our experiences don't always inform us well, uh, which I think is why in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul instructs the church not to exceed what is written in Scripture, because if we start counseling someone according to our experience or our thoughts or our philosophies or what we think should be our preferences, our expectations, whatever, and we exceed the Bible, those things ultimately lead us astray because the world is always changing and each generation has different sorts of experiences because with each generation, the world has changed. And we don't even know what the world's going to look like next year, right? Look at what COVID did to it. It changed the whole world in six months. And now we have to operate by a, a different standard, a different set of worldly expectations. Uh, a, a, there are different ways now of doing outreach and different ways of doing, of doing ministry. And we've had to adapt to all that, different ways of doing work and running businesses and, and running households, um, all in the matter of six months. So we have no idea what next year is going to look like. We can't really rely on our past experiences to guide us into the future, which, again, is why I think Paul instructed us not to exceed what is written in Scripture, because these are God's words, and these are, and these are timeless, and this advice is binding because it's in the mind and heart of, of God, not any person. It doesn't rely on the experience of human Humankind, religious knowledge that makes that makes arrogant. Um, we partake in a certain religion so long, and we know its precepts and and beliefs and practices and kind of kind of what we expect from that religious system. And we kind of get haughty, we get prideful in our in our religion and in our religious perspectives and in our religious practices. And then practical knowledge, like if I know how to do more stuff than you, then I'm I'm superior than, than you. And knowledge makes arrogance. It's not difficult for us to imagine why knowledge makes arrogant. Um, but knowledge, knowledge does make arrogant. That doesn't mean knowledge is a bad thing. But it does mean there's a certain danger, something to be careful of as we grow in our knowledge, each one. I believe God does want us to grow in our knowledge. And we'll see that as we move through these three verses, too. And Paul ends verse 1 by saying, but love edifies. So they're drawing a dichotomy between knowledge as one type of thing and love as another type of thing. Knowledge is a thing of mind and love is a thing of heart or the bowels. Like, love is... Love is it happens in the brain. Scientifically, it all happens in the brain, right? But 
but knowledge is something different than love. Love is a sincere, sincere care for others, uh, considering of others to be more important than ourselves. Whereas knowledge, if we latch onto that, grab onto knowledge, then we promote ourselves over other people. So knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Um, to find our identity in knowledge is to participate with the world uh, in the, the exaltation of human wisdom. Now, Paul is already prepared for this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, uh, Paul prepared for what he was going to say here in chapter 8. Listen to what Paul says. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. You were of humble circumstance. You were of humble mind, humble heart. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. That's what God is doing. Uh, God is not secretive about his plan. Um, this is not what we hear in most places, right? That uh, God's plan in King Jesus and through the local church is to put the world to shame. Hmm. The ways of the world. Uh, the ways of arrogance, the ways of clinging to our own knowledge, philosophies, politics, and whatever, our own reputations, expectations, preferences. God's desire, in fact, God's mind is set on this, God has decided this, that through the proclamation of his word and through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is putting these things to shame. Uh, that is why... Paul is pointing out here that knowledge, the knowledge of man makes arrogant, but love edifies. Um, I was trying to think about how I see uh, knowledge making arrogant in the world today. And, and here, are some things I, here are some things I came up with. Uh, one, I'm just I'm calling this theologism, right? Um, so whether you are a hardcore Arminian arguing against Calvinism or a cage-stage Calvinist, uh, you know, um, thinking that if people don't agree with you in the doctrines of grace and they're all going to hell, like, theologism creates an arrogant sort of people. Now, I, I believe fully in the doctrines of grace. And I, I believe fully the, the, the principles, the five soli. But woe to me if I think because my theology is on point that makes me superior to anyone else or more redeemable than anyone else. Uh, woe to me because I have become arrogant. Uh, cage stage Calvinism, I believe, makes the correct confession of faith and confesses correct doctrine with, with the mouth. But I believe those hearts are far from Christ. Because the, the outpouring of life doesn't, doesn't quite match the love that Scripture inspires us to and that Paul is admonishing the church towards here in 1 Corinthians. So there's theologism, a superiority complex when it comes to our theology. 
Number two, generationalism or experientialism. Um, I have lived longer. I've been at this church longer. I've been at this job longer. I've been a parent longer than you. Um, I have more experience than you have. Life experience, work experience, church experience, family experience, marriage experience. Therefore, I am superior to you. Uh, this is a clinging to a worship of human knowledge and it makes arrogance. So there's a certain arrogance that comes with more experience and there's a, a certain arrogance that comes with getting older. Paul is warning the church at Corinth about these things. Number three, religionism. My religion is better than yours. Uh, my religious practice is better than yours. My liturgy is better than yours. My church is better than, than yours. This is knowledge which leads to arrogance. And this knowledge may not always be correct even, right? But we, we are always convinced of the things we think we, we, we know and we believe. Otherwise, we, we wouldn't believe them, right? So there's religionism. There is inward focus is number four. Inward focus, kindism, the arrogance of self. So this is when I, I direct all my attention inward toward my preferences, my expectations, the way I think things should be. This causes kindism, and kindism is I'm only really going to be uh, accepting of those people who are kind to me and who are like me. I'm going to be kind to them, which means they are of my kind, so I'll be nice, right? Um, kindism. And the arrogance of self. Now, looking at religionism in this inward focus, I, I, I just I can't help but think of a way I was recently condemned, um, and this person made me feel like I was just, like I was just destined to hell. Right? Now, there's a verse in James that says, "If you are, if anyone among you is is sick, let that person call on the elders of the church. They might anoint, anoint you with with oil." And so that you might receive the forgiveness of sins, right? And I do not carry oil on me, twenty-four anointing oil on me 24-7. And somebody, as if this person was much better than, than I, and they probably are much better than I, um, I, I hope they pray for me so I can be as perfect as they are, right? And this person looked at me and said, I can't believe... You don't carry that on. I carry that on me 24. I'm always ready to anoint someone with oil. Man, great. That's cool. Um, I hope one day I can be as perfect as you are, apparently, in, in everything. But that's, my friend, that's arrogance. That's religionism, inward focus, and kindism, and arrogance of self. I am better than you because I. I do things that you don't do. That, this straight up knowledge leading to arrogance. That's what Paul is referring to here. Number five, intellectualism and credentialism. And, and this is where this is where my pitfall has been. So I'm not exempt from this. Like this is where my pitfall has been. Intellectualism, uh, uh, being more of an intellect than other people doesn't make us better than other people. Having more degrees hanging on the wall or plaques hanging on the wall or whatever, it doesn't make us better than anyone else. Those things have a huge tendency to produce arrogance because all of a sudden we have the paperwork showing that we're smarter than the other guy, 
right? That's not right. That's arrogance. Knowledge leads to arrogance. And then number six, entitlement. You see the, the core of entitlement is, is title. And title can refer to an office. You must call me pastor or whatever title is mayor, boss, Mr. So-and-so, Reverend, Reverend Brother Pastor Man. You're like, you have to call me that. So this is, this is entitlement. I deserve something because my name bears with it a certain title. Doctor, master, president, congressman, congresswoman, congressperson. <laughs> I deserve something because my name has a certain title attached to it. Titles, these titles aren't given by God. These titles are given by, by people. They don't mean much, right? We don't find our identity in titles, and we certainly aren't entitled to anything because of a title we have. The other kind of title I know of is status, socioeconomic status, uh, ethnic status, black, gay, impoverished. If you carry this sort of title, you are entitled to certain benefits. That's... That's a sort of knowledge leading to arrogance as well. And we think that we are owed something like money or, 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 or land or, or respect. No. That's just arrogance according to scripture. And knowledge, whatever knowledge we have, that's what leads us into to this type of arrogance and Brothers and sisters, no one is exempt. Not a single, not a single person is exempt from that. Like we should, we should be hearing this, and it should be cutting us all to the to the heart, because we were all here. Arrogant. Some of us are still here. Some of us are are becoming a little more mature, but this should be be cutting us to. The bone cutting between our bone and our marrow and our soul and our spirit. Like that's what scripture does when we read it and when we teach it. Like we should be reading it and, and teaching it. Like that's what it does. But love, love edifies. So Paul is saying here, love is greater than knowledge. In fact, when we get to 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, Paul He's going to argue straight up that love outweighs knowledge so much. Knowledge passes away, but, but love remains. Love is forever. Now, if you love, the fruit of your life will be edifying others rather than tearing people down or belittling others or trying to subjugate others. But if you are arrogant, puffed up in your own knowledge, you will belittle others and walk on others and tear others down and cause division within the local church and division within the local church causes division in the community and the, the effects are wide ranging verse 2 Paul gives some evidence here evidence of arrogance now you ask any person almost any person like are you are you an arrogant person? <laughs> They're not likely going to reply by saying, heck yes, I'm arrogant, fool. 
It's, it's not likely the way anyone would respond. Even, even the arrogant person would respond by saying, no, I don't think I'm arrogant. Arrogance is not something we, we can readily identify within ourselves, but we can't really see how arrogant we are. We can pray that we are not arrogant. We can hope that we are being sanctified so we are not arrogant or don't continue to be arrogant. Or we can pray that God reveal it to us. But if we recognized our arrogance, we, we wouldn't be that way, right? So Paul gives evidence here. This is how you know if you are arrogant. This is how you know, how you can discern, how you can judge yourself and see whether or not you are in Christ, in the faith, faith that promotes humility over arrogance and love over knowledge. This is how you know. And I don't know anyone's heart, so I can't look at you and I can't say, hey, you are some kind of... All I can do is ask you here to evaluate yourself. And Paul's giving this for the purpose of self-evaluation. And in verse 2 he says, if anyone, giving this evidence, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. If anyone supposes he knows anything. Theo theological knowledge included anything theological Sorts of knowledge, factual knowledge, informational knowledge, experiential knowledge. If you assume you know anything experientially, anything. Religious knowledge. If you assume you know anything religiously, if you just if you, if you suppose you do, this is your supposition. If you suppose that, that you have any kind of practical knowledge whatsoever, then you have you have not known as you ought to know. You are arrogant. Now that hurts, doesn't it? It causes me to step back and think, well, crap. Because I, because I suppose all the time that I, that I have knowledge worth having. I imagine you do too, right? But to suppose that we know anything is not to know how we ought to know. To suppose that we know anything requires us to presuppose that we, of ourselves, have the capacity to be enlightened, to enlighten ourselves. But look at what Paul says next. But, again, drawing another dichotomy, right? Or repeating the dichotomy he's already drawn between knowledge and love. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Wait, who owns that knowledge? There in verse 3. Who owns that knowledge? That's, that's God's knowledge. That's not human knowledge at all. This is insane. Like, if I love God more than what I think theologically, and if I love God more than what I have come to know experientially, like if I love God more than that. And if I love God more than my religion, more than, I, than I've come to know religiously, 
my religious knowledge. And if, I, and if I love God more than I love my practical knowledge, that is evidence that I am known by Him. Paul makes this a salvation issue. Like to cling to our own knowledge of stuff and to let that bring us into arrogance, that is, that is, that is fruit of unrighteousness. But if God chooses us, and God knows us relationally, somehow our hearts are changed such that we are brought to love Him instead of all that. And again, I'm brought back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul, as an example, says, We make ourselves examples to you so that you may know by our example not to exceed what is written. And why? There in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, because to exceed what is written is arrogance. Which means requiring others to meet our expectations, preferences. To meet our standards, to meet our rules, to meet our legal expectations. is to expect others to do what we require of them rather than what God requires of them. That's what we're doing when we exceed what is written. And in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul calls that arrogance. Now, arrogance is no joke. And it grips us and we justify it. And everyone suffers as a result. But if we love God, that is evidence that we are known by Him. Now Paul, again, he will, he will get at what love is deeper when we get to chapter 13. But if we are known by God, then we love Him more than we love our knowledge, our theological knowledge, informational knowledge, factual knowledge, experiential knowledge practical knowledge, religious knowledge. We, we love Him more than we love those things. If we love Him more than we love those things, then those things aren't the standard by which we operate any longer. Instead, we, we operate according to the love within us, wanting to edify others. And in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus even teaches us to, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Which means even when we are dealing with those people, now we, we're Romans chapter 12, right? As, long as, it, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. But if someone has made us an enemy, and we react, and our motivation is only to tear them down, and we prove to be not the people of God, the people of God fight, fight differently. We're not like the world. And Jesus tells us to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. And then we learn that part of what it means to love others is to sincerely work to edify them. Some people react against edification, right? I've had entire communities react against me because I want to build up the community, which makes little sense to me. Uh, preach grace, forgiveness, and people react against that. I think it's because they don't have the Spirit of God in them. 
but to look at those who make us enemies and say, I want to edify you. I want to serve for your good too. I want to try to build you up. That's what love leads us into. And if we ever find ourselves tearing anyone down, we prove not to have the love of God in us. And y'all, I used to tear people down. I, I was guilty of that. I can't condemn anyone for being like that. I, I used to be like that. I deserve much worse than that. But God is so good. And he loved his enemy, me, first so that I could love my enemies and seek to edify them. That's what love is. You must measure your own heart. Are you arrogant? Do you cling to your own knowledge, theological knowledge, experiential knowledge, religious knowledge, practical knowledge? Do you cling to that and say, yes, this is who I am? And anyone who doesn't agree with me is condemned. Like, is that, are you, are you arrogant? If so, please repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ is judging the world. There will be life for those in Christ and everlasting death for those who are not in Christ. A new earth for those in Christ and hell to pay for those who are not in Christ. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But if you are in Christ and, and, and you grow in humility and sincere with love and, and want to edify people more and more and more. I hope you are encouraged by these three verses. And these three verses prepare us for what comes next. This, this conversation about eating meat sacrificed to idols. Applied in the modern day about eating some things that are restricted in the Old Testament, Right? about consuming alcoholic beverages, about listening to music by certain artists. All of the ways in which we can apply what's coming next. So prayerfully, we will continue. I hope that you are encouraged, and if you're not in Christ, I hope you, I hope you repent today. Um, and it, if he's leading you to repent, that means he's going to forgive you of all your sin. Everything you've ever done against him or ever will do against him, and he'll no longer hold that against you. Like if we are in Christ, that's the gift. Eternal life is to know him. So I invite you into such a relationship. I am praying for all of those who continue to keep up with these videos and this series through 1 Corinthians. And, uh, and I thank you for your prayers in return. I will catch you next time.